Well, good morning, everyone. It's a great pleasure to be here. Our reading today takes, uh, is in Mark's Gospel, Mark chapter 11. If you have the Red Pew Bibles, that's page 1016. Today in the Christian calendar, the Sunday before Easter, is Palm Sunday, which records or reminds us of the events uh, of the life of Jesus where he entered the city of Jerusalem with great acclamation. And we're going to read Mark's account. Each of the four gospel writers records uh, this event for us. As they approached Jerusalem and came to Bethpage and Bethany, At the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of his disciples, saying to them, Go to the village ahead of you, and just as you enter it, you will find a colt tied there, which no one has ever ridden. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, Why are you doing this? Tell him, The Lord needs it and will send it back here shortly. They went and found a colt outside in the street, tied at a doorway, As they untied it, some people standing there asked, What are you doing untying that colt? They answered as Jesus had told them to, and the people let them go. When they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their cloaks over it, he sat on it. Many people spread their cloaks on the road, while others spread branches they had cut in the fields. Those who went ahead and those who followed shouted, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. Jesus entered Jerusalem and went to the temple. He looked round at everything, but since it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. The next day, as they were leaving Bethany, Jesus was hungry. Seeing in the distance a fig tree and leaf, he went to find out if it had any fruit. When he reached it, he found nothing but leaves, because it was not the season for figs. Then he said to the tree, May no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard him say it. On reaching Jerusalem, Jesus entered the temple area and began driving out those who were buying and selling there. He overturned the tables of the money changers and the benches of those selling doves and would not allow anyone to carry merchandise through the temple courts. And as he taught them, he said, Is it not written? My house will be called a house of prayer for all nations, but you have made it a den of robbers. The chief priests and the teachers of the law heard this and began looking for a way to kill him, for they feared him because the whole crowd was amazed at his teaching. When evening came, they went out of the city. As we join with the millions of Christians throughout the world who are remembering the events of what is described as Holy Week, those eight days from Palm Sunday to Easter Sunday, take this opportunity when you go home, maybe throughout this week, to choose one of the four Gospels and to read those events from the triumphal entry through to Easter Sunday Resurrection and see how each of the gospel writers slows down and emphasizes the smallest of details in these events 
telescoping our attention to show us the miraculous and the momentous occasions that these events mean for us today. And with you uh, this morning, what strikes me about the entrance into Jerusalem is the words that are spoken by the crowd. Now, we can find fault, and many will say that the crowd was quite fickle, because if this was Palm Sunday, it was only five days later that a large crowd would have been shouting something very different. Instead of shouting, Hosanna, they would be shouting, Crucify. Instead of shouting, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, they would be shouting, No, not him, give us Barabbas. So, Crowds can be fickle, one day for you, one day against. But whether or not they knew, whether or not they understood, the words that they speak here are words of truth. Now, as Christians, we have very definitive ideas of what truth is. Remember Pontius Pilate, the governor, on that Friday, Good Friday? He asked the question that was never answered, what is truth? Now, as Christians, we would often emphasize that the answer is not what, but who. Jesus himself in John 14 said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. So truth is not abstract, but truth is concrete. Truth is not impersonal, but truth is personal. It's found in Jesus Christ. And the truth of Christ is always true. You see, we live in a world today, and many academic subjects will emphasize that truth is relative. What you believe in Dundee may be true in Dundee, but what we believe in Edinburgh can be true in Edinburgh. It doesn't matter that they might be contradictory, but truth is relative. If you're old, you might believe certain things, and if you're young, you might believe other things, and that's fine. If you're from a Western culture, you might believe certain things. If you're from an Eastern culture, you might believe other things. If you have a certain religious background, you might have a set of truths. But if you have no religious upbringing, you might have a different set of truths. And the age in which we live will say that you can take each of these truths, whether they agree or disagree, whether they are coherent or contradictory, and say that all truth is relative. Now, the Bible doesn't allow that relativity. Truth is always truth. The lie is always a lie. And we today are confronted with the truth concerning Jesus, even when that truth comes from an unreliable source. You see, no matter who says it, the truth is always true. No matter why it's said, the truth is always true. No matter what the motivation might be, truth is always true. Now, the Apostle Paul, in his ministry... Remember, he was sitting in a prison cell. This is in Philippians. And he was confronted with the challenge that there were some who were preaching Christ with mixed motives. If you look at Philippians uh, chapter 1 and verse 15, he says, It is true that some preach Christ out of envy and rivalry, but others out of goodwill. The latter do so in love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former preach Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, supposing that they can stir up trouble for me 
while I am in chains. So you get the scene. Paul's in jail. He can't influence the events that are happening outside of jail. And he realizes that there are two groups. Those who are preaching Christ out of good motives and those who are preaching Christ out of selfish motives. Now, if I'm honest with myself, and maybe if you're honest, you would say, well, I would condemn the one and praise the other. But what does Paul say? But what does it matter? The important thing is that in every way, whether from false motives or true, Christ is preached, and because of this, I rejoice. So this morning, I want to let the crowd preach to us, because they capture truth concerning Jesus that is quite remarkable. Now, we might question their motivation, we might question their sincerity, we might question their commitment to the truths that they speak. But with you this morning, I'd like you to notice that their truth is true, and that if we grasp what they said, whether or not they understood the implications of what they said, these truths will transform our lives. So with you, I'd like to notice three things from this passage. First of all, the preparation that took place. That seems quite mundane, but it's significant, the preparation. Then secondly, the acclamation, the the words that the crowd speak, the shouts of joy and triumph that they make. And then thirdly, and searchingly, the inspection. You see, Jesus... At the evening of Palm Sunday, we're told that he entered Jerusalem and went to the temple. He looked around at everything, but since it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. We give Jesus the final word. We give Jesus the final say. We allow Jesus' inspection to take, uh, to take charge of our lives individually and collectively. First, the preparation And you might say, well, let's skip over these opening verses because they're not that important. We're talking about a donkey. We're talking about the practical arrangements for facilitating Jesus' Jerusalem journey. It's not that important. Well, my natural reaction to that would be, well, if it's not that important, why does the gospel writer take such care to give us these details? Why does Jesus take such care to arrange his mode of transportation, and not just the mode, but the particular animal that will take him on this particular journey. We're told that when he approached Jerusalem, he gave his disciples very clear commands. He says, go to the village, and as you enter it, you'll find a colt, it's never been ridden, untie it, bring it here, and he has the contingency prepared. If anyone asks, which would not be unusual, if somebody you know, take a modern-day example. Somebody comes into your driveway and starts to un, uh, open the car door and to drive the car away. You might inquire as to what they're doing and why they're doing it. Now, the same idea with a transportation that's based on animals. If anyone asks you, why are you doing this, tell him the Lord needs it and will send it back here shortly. Now, each of the four gospel writers makes it quite clear that Jesus has power and Jesus has authority. And he demonstrates that power and that authority primarily through his preaching. No one ever preached as he preached. No one ever taught as he taught. And he demonstrated his power through miracles, where he suspended the ordinary rules of nature to demonstrate that he has ultimate power and authority. In the ancient world, dead people stayed dead unless Jesus called them back to life. 
In the ancient world, as in the modern world, that we are denser than water, so if I try to walk on the bathtub or on the swimming pool, I will sink. That is, of course, unless Jesus suspends the ordinary rules of gravitation, the ordinary rules of of physics, to enable him to walk on water. But here we have a much different scene. We have what you might describe as an ordinary event of life, very mundane, very unexciting. And yet we have here demonstrated that Jesus is in complete control of the everyday details of life, of the mundane details of our existence. This is what we would describe not as Jesus' miraculous intervention in life, but this is what we would describe as Jesus' providential care, his providential oversight. Because the Bible tells us that all authority in heaven and on earth rests upon the Lord Jesus. So he can arrange these small details. He can make sure that there is a colt tied where it's meant to be tied. He can make sure that the owners of that colt will enable a group of strangers to untie that colt and to lead it away. So what does that say to us? That says to us that the details of our life, which might seem so mundane, so uninteresting, so, so boring, that these details come under his power, that they come under his authority, that he is able to order and arrange our lives. Now, that doesn't mean that we are without responsibility because the disciples did exactly what they were told to do. They didn't sit back and say, well, if Jesus has organized this, then the cult will come of its own volition and we just have to sit and wait for it. No, because in verse 4, they went and found a colt outside in the street tied at a doorway. As they untied it, that was his command, some people standing there asked, what are you doing untying that colt? They answered as Jesus had told them to, and the people let them go. When they brought the colt to Jesus, threw their cloaks over it, he sat on it. So in this small incident, which you can easily pass over, and yet this detail is recorded for us with great precision by Mark and the other gospel writers, what are we being told? That the small details of life matter to Jesus, that he is able to organize and orchestrate the events of your life and my life, and that he expects us to obey him in these small details. So what seems to be that paradox of, is God in control, or are we responsible moral agents? The answer to that question is yes. God is in control, and we are responsible moral agents. We make choices, we make decisions, and Jesus expects us to obey him in the small details of life, just as we would expect to obey Jesus in the big things of life. So the preparation takes place under his authority. Now, you might not say the provision of the cult ranks alongside of walking on water or raising Lazarus from the dead or giving sight to the blind or enabling the mute to speak, but it is nonetheless equally persuasive that we have in Jesus one who has ultimate power and ultimate authority over life and, as we'll see, over death. Now we come to the acclamation. What exactly is being said? Now, Mark captures these words of the crowd. Hosanna, which is like a collective command, save or salvation. 
Then the blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. So we are given this insight into the person of Jesus. Remember, he is now on a coat, on a colt. The cloaks are spread on the on the animal. He sits on the animal. People are throwing their cloaks along the road. They're spreading branches they had cut in the field. And they are shouting at the top of their voice. And it seems as if there are two crowds that converge. In John's gospel, we're told that the crowd that was in Jerusalem, who had gathered to see Lazarus, whom Jesus had raised from the dead, when they hear that Jesus is approaching Jerusalem, they go out to meet him. And the crowd that had been following Jesus accompanies him into the city. Now, this is approaching Passover time, so the city's population would have swollen, maybe a million. By Passover time, it might have been as high as two million people in an ancient city that is massive. So you have this great crowd that is coming out to see Jesus, this great crowd that is following Jesus, and these crowds converge together, and we have the scene of Jesus not entering on the chariot, not riding the war horse, not the image that you would expect of the Roman emperor, but you have here the humble Jesus riding on the back of a colt, of a donkey, a a beast of burden, a humble animal. But the words that are spoken is what I'd like you to concentrate on. They are attributing salvation to this man. They are attributing blessing to this man. And they are somehow saying that this man comes with two authorities. He comes with the authority of God, and he comes in the line of David. And this, uh, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Now name, this word, the the idea of name is, is very significant because the name of the Lord carries with it the character and the, the, the quality of God. So that when you speak of coming in the name of, that means that you are appropriately, that you are appropriate or suitable to represent the Lord. The na- so even names in the Old Testament, for example, uh, are critical. Elijah, the Lord is my God. That's what Elijah means. Or, or Matthew, Matthew means gift of God. That names are chosen with deliberate care. Still the same today. Uh, you choose the name of a child. You don't just go to a book and choose a name randomly. You choose a name that's significant, that's important. So the name, if you come in the name of the Lord, that means that you can represent God. That means that you are a suitable representative for the Lord. But notice that he, he's, he comes as well in the name of David. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Now there's a, a promise that was given back in 2 Samuel. In 2 Samuel, God gives David a promise. This is 2 Samuel chapter 7 and at verse 11, the second part of verse 11. The Lord declares to you, this is the Lord declaring to David, that the Lord himself will establish a house for you. Remember, David wanted to build the Lord a house, and the Lord said, no, it won't be you that builds me the house, it'll be your son Solomon. When your days, David, are over and you rest with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring to succeed You, who will come from your own body, and I will establish his kingdom. He is the one who will build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom 
forever. I will be his father, and he will be my son. So yes, Solomon fulfilled that promise partially. Solomon built the temple. But Solomon didn't live forever. Solomon's kingdom didn't last forever. And the throne of David, by the time of Jesus, was empty. There was no Davidic king on the throne of Israel. Who was in charge? Pontius Pilate was in charge. Oh, yes, there were high priests, but they were ceremonial. The power rested in Rome. And yet the crowd somehow understands that when they see Jesus, that there they see God's salvation, that when they see Jesus, that there they see the power and the authority of the Lord, and that when they see Jesus, that they see this fulfillment of this great promise, that one from the line of David will sit on the throne, will fulfill this great prediction, this great prophecy, and his kingdom will know no end, will know no limit, will be eternal, will be infinite. And they conclude, or Mark concludes his account, Hosanna in the highest. That the crowd gives Jesus their highest praise. They, they can't find words greater than these to praise him. And these words challenge us this morning because Jesus is not content with comparatives. You know what a comparative is if you know English grammar. A comparative is where you say wiser than or better than or stronger than. You're taking two people or two ideas or two concepts and you are comparing them. Now, we can say that Jesus is wiser than, and Jesus is stronger than, and Jesus is better than, and we can fill in the blank. But the crowd makes a claim that we need to agree with. Do we accept that in Jesus we have the highest, the best, the strongest, the wisest, that they used a superlative because if somebody is worthy of praise in the highest, that means there is no one higher. That means that there is no one greater. That means that there is no one more worthy of praise, of glory, and of acclamation. Is that your view of Jesus this morning? When you view him, do you recognize that he is the source of your salvation? That means your reconciliation with God. Do you recognize that he comes with the power and the authority of God because he is God? Remember the words of God to David? I will be his father, he will be my son. Those words are literally fulfilled in the Lord Jesus. Because by his human nature, he is of the line of David. He was born in Bethlehem from the family of David. But he is fulfilling that ultimate prophecy, that ultimate prediction that God is his father and that he is his son and that his kingdom knows no limits, no time limits, no place limits, knows no limits that we are accustomed to. Blessed is he who comes, is the coming kingdom of our father David, Hosanna in the highest. Now, if you remember, at the very beginning of Jesus' ministry, this superlative was also spoken. Remember the voice of the angels? Not just the individual angel of the Lord, but in Luke chapter 2, the the uh, heavenly host appeared in Luke chapter 2, verse 13. Suddenly, a great company of the heavenly host appeared with the angel, praising God and saying, when you hear heavenly host, 
Think of the sky absolutely filled with angels. Think of a massive crowd of angels that suddenly appears, and you're not surprised that the shepherds would have been terrified. And the heavenly host, this heavenly crowd, says this, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace to men on whom his favor rests. So you have these bookends. At the beginning of Jesus' life and 33 years later, he is given this acclamation in the superlative that he deserves glory in the highest and he deserves praise or hosanna in the highest. Is that how you see Jesus? Do you see him as one who is the wisest, one who is the strongest, one who is the most glorious, one who is most worthy of your praise, that he deserves all that you have, that he deserves all that you are, because he really is this great combination of divine and human, that he is the source of salvation, that he is God's power, that he is ushering in God's kingdom, and that the words of the crowd on Palm Sunday need to be our words, not just words that we repeat out like a parrot, but need to be words and sentiments that come from a genuine and a sincere heart that's connected by faith to the Lord Jesus Christ. So you have the preparation, you then have the acclamation, and then thirdly and finally, you have this inspection. And it's interesting that Mark, the, the, fourth, the, 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 the smallest, the shortest of the four Gospels, has details that no other Gospel writer has. And Mark 11, 11 is one of those details. Jesus entered Jerusalem. Well, we understand that. It was a triumphal entry. But this is what we don't get in other Gospels. He went to the temple. He looked around at everything. But since it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. The inspection. If you have a car, you realize that every year, unless it's a brand new car, you have to have an MOT. You have to have some expert come and look at your car. Now, I am not an expert on cars. I know if it runs. I know if it doesn't run. I don't know if the brakes are good. I don't know if the engine is working properly. I don't know if the, you know, all these qualities, whether the emissions are what they should be, but the experts do, and they put you through this test, and you either pass the test or you fail the test. If you fail the test, you know you failed the test because it costs you more money to fix the car than you had, had hoped it would. Now, here we have Jesus looking around at everything. He sees everything. He knows everything. He understands what's true, and he understands what's false. He understands what's sincere, and he knows what's insincere. And it's not surprising that this inspection on Palm Sunday evening precedes the events that we read subsequently, that it precedes his inspection of the temple and his overturning of the tables, the casting out of the money changers. He will not have his father's house being overrun by a den of robbers. It's not surprising that when he sees the fig tree that's full of leaves but no fruit, that he curses that fig tree and that ultimately it withers. Why? Because he's inspecting, and he sees, and he knows. You see, the best we can do just like with my car, I can look at my car and I can judge whether it's working properly. I can't look into the insides of it. I can't inspect the engine. I can't do anything more because I'm not an expert. But Jesus is the expert on the human heart. 
He's the expert on the human mind. He knows who you are. He knows what you think. He knows what makes you tick. And he knows who is ultimately in charge of your life. Just like the disciples. Jesus says, and they do. They obey. Whether it makes sense or whether it doesn't make sense, they go ahead of Jesus and they get the colt, just as Jesus told them to do. They explain just as Jesus told them to explain, and they bring the colt to Jesus. Now, the crowd is another situation. Do they really know? Do they really understand? Are their words genuine and sincere? Or do their feelings change with the wind? One day saying, Hosanna in the highest, the next day saying, crucify. So the question is, when Jesus is inspecting your heart, when he's inspecting your mind, when he judges your motivation, when he knows not only where you are this morning, but he knows why you're here. He knows what brings you here. He knows the attitude that you have while you're here. He sees, he knows, and he understands. He knows the collective, and he knows the individual. What does he see? What does he perceive? Does he see a genuine love? Does he see a genuine acclamation? Does he see that in your heart that he is the highest, that he is the greatest, that there is none greater, none wiser, none more powerful, none loved more? Because that is the place that he deserves, and that is the place he demands. So whether or not the crowd understand what they're saying, they do set the scene, and they do set the standard. Hosanna in the highest. So this morning, throughout the world, the Christian church is ushering in their celebration of Holy Week, Palm Sunday, Easter Sunday. And in this week, we have a series of momentous events. The great entrance of Jesus into Jerusalem. He's no longer hiding his identity. He's no longer saying to his disciples, don't say, don't tell. He's letting the whole city, he's letting the whole world see his glory and his majesty and his humility. Do you see his glory? Do you understand his humility? Do you realize that the journey that he is commencing is a journey that in five days will take him to the cross? And that journey was a deliberate journey for you and for me. So when we say he's the highest, and when we say he's the greatest, he proves and he, de- he demonstrates his identity and his authority by what he says and by what he does. So these great events of those eight days focus our hearts and focus our minds. So we prepare our hearts. Do we share our acclamation? Do we join our praise together, recognizing that he is the source of our salvation, that he is coming in God's great name, that he is coming to save, and that we celebrate him, we rejoice together today, and we gather together our voices in praising him and acknowledging him. Hosanna in the highest. You've been listening to a sermon from St. Peter's Free Church in Dundee, the historic church of Robert Murray McShane. For more sermon content, please visit our website at stpeters-dundee.org.uk. That's www.stpeters-dundee.org.uk. For information and training on persuasive evangelism and how to share your faith biblically, please visit the website of SOLAS, the Centre for Public Christianity, at solace-cpc.org. 
Once again, that's www.solas-cpc.org. Thanks for listening.